This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for joining us Around the Fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactsnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? I had not been settled much more than six weeks in my country practice when I was sent to a neighboring town to consult on a case of a very dangerous illness. Looking to hire a gig for my return home as cheaply as possible, I sought out an unpretentious inn. The one I found was dingy and quiet, with an old-fashioned sign that had evidently not been repainted for many years past. The landlord was not about making a small profit, and as soon as we came to terms, he rang the yard bell to order the gig. Has Robert not come back from the errand? He asked, appealing to the waiter who answered the bell. No, sir, he hasn't. Well, then, you must wake up Isaac. Wake up Isaac, I repeated. That sounds rather odd. Do your ostlers go to bed in the daytime? This one does, said the landlord, smiling to himself in a rather strange way. And dreams, too, added the waiter. Never you mind about that retorted his master. You go and rouse Isaac up. The gentleman's waiting for his gig. Uh, Stop a minute, I interposed. I have rather a fancy for seeing this man before you wake him. I am a doctor, and if this queer sleeping and dreaming of his comes from anything wrong in his brain, I may be able to tell you what to do with him. I rather think you'll find his complaint past all doctrine, sir, said the landlord. But if you'd like to see him, you're welcome, I'm sure. He led the way across a yard to the stables, opened one of the doors, and waiting outside himself, told me to look in. I found myself in a two-stall stable. In one of the stalls, an old man was lying asleep on a litter. I stooped and looked at him attentively. It was a withered, woebegone face. The hollow, wrinkled cheeks and the scanty, grizzled hair told their own tale of past sorrow or suffering. He was drawing his breath convulsively when I first looked at him, and in a moment more, he began to talk in his sleep. No, wake up, I heard him say. Wake up there, murder! He moved one lean arm slowly till it rested over his throat, shuddered a little, and turned on the straw. Then the arm left his throat, the hand stretched itself out and clutched at the side towards which he had turned, as if he fancied himself to be grasping at the edge of something. Light grey eyes, he murmured, and a droop in the left eyelid. Flaxen hair with a gold yellow streak in it. All right, mother. 
Fairweight arms with a down on them. Little lady's hand with a reddish look under the fingernails. <laughs> you she-devil! Where's the knife? I saw him shudder on the straw. His withered face became distorted, and he threw up both his hands with a quick, hysterical gasp. They struck against the bottom of the manger under which he lay, and the blow awakened him. I had just time to slip through the door before his eyes were fully open and his senses his own again. Do you know anything about this man's past life? I said to the landlord. Yes, sir. I know pretty well all about it, was the answer. And an uncommon queer story it is. Why, just look at him. Poor devil, he's so worn out with his restless nights he's dropped back into his sleep already. Don't wake him, I said. I'm in no hurry for the gig. Wait till the other man comes back from his errand. And in the meantime, suppose I have some lunch and a bottle of sherry, and suppose you come and help me to get through it, hmm? The heart of mine host, as I had anticipated, warmed to me over his own wine. He soon became communicative on the subject of the man asleep in the stable, and little by little I drew the whole story out of him. It seems that some years ago there lived in the suburbs of a large seaport town on the west coast of England a man of humble circumstances by the name of Isaac Scatchard. His means of subsistence were derived from any employment he could get as an ostler, and occasionally, when times went well with him, from temporary engagements in service as stable helper in private houses. Though a faithful, steady and honest man, he got on badly in his calling. His ill luck was proverbial among his neighbours. He was always missing good opportunities by no fault of his own, and Unlucky Isaac was his nickname in his own neighbourhood. When he was out of service, he lived alone with his widowed mother, who contrived to provide for her simple wants by doing rough work for the tailors, and always managed to keep a decent home for her son to return to whenever his ill luck drove him out helpless into the world. One bleak autumn, when Isaac was getting on towards forty, and when he was, as usual, out of place through no fault of his own, he set forth from his mother's cottage on a long walk inland to a gentleman's seat, where he had heard that a stable helper was required. It wanted then but two days of his birthday, and Mrs. Catchard, with her usual fondness, made him promise before he started that he would be back in time to keep that anniversary with her in as festive a way as their poor means would allow. It was easy for him to comply with this request, even supposing he slept a night each way on the road. He was to start from home on Monday morning, and whether he got the new place or not, he was to be back for his birthday dinner on Wednesday at two o'clock. Arriving at his destination too late on the Monday night to make application for the stable helper's place, he slept at the village inn, and in good time, on the Tuesday morning, presented himself at the gentleman's house to fill the vacant situation. Here again his ill luck pursued him as inexorably as ever. His long walk had been in vain. Only the day before, the stable helper's place had been given to another man. Isaac accepted this new disappointment resignedly and as a matter of course. He set forth on his homeward journey and walked all day with only one stoppage for bread and cheese. Just as it was getting towards dark, the rain came on and the wind began to rise and he found himself stopping at a lonely roadside inn for the night. At a little after eleven, the house was closed and Isaac went round with the landlord holding the candle while the doors and lower windows were being secured. He noticed with surprise the strength of the bolts, bars and iron-sheathed shutters. You see, we are rather lonely here, said the landlord. We never had any attempts made to break in yet, but 
It's always as well to be on the safe side. It was half past eleven by the clock in the passage as they went upstairs to the bedroom, the window of which looked out onto the wood at the back of the house. Well, here's where you're to sleep, said the landlord. You're the only lodger tonight, and I think you'll say my missus has done her best to make you comfortable. Isaac locked the door, set his candle on the chest of drawers, and wearily got ready for bed. The bleak autumn wind was still blowing, and Isaac resolved as he lay down to keep the candle alight until he began to grow sleepy, for there was something unendurably depressing in the bare idea of lying awake in the darkness, listening to the dismal, ceaseless moan of the wind in the wood. Sleep stole on him before he was aware of it. His eyes closed, and he fell off insensibly to rest, without having so much as thought of extinguishing the candle. In one moment he passed from a state of sleep to a state of wakefulness, his eyes wide open, his mental perceptions cleared on a sudden as if by a miracle. The candle had burnt down nearly to the last morsel of tallow, but the top of the unsnuffed wick had just fallen off, and the light in the little room was for the moment fair and full. Between the foot of the bed and the closed door, there stood a woman with a knife in her hand looking at him. He was stricken with terror. The woman said not a word as they stared each other in the face, but she began to move slowly towards the left-hand side of the bed. She was a fair, fine woman, with yellowish flaxen hair and light grey eyes, with a droop in the left eyelid. Speechless, with no expression in her face, with no noise following her footfall, she came closer and closer, stopped and slowly raised the knife. He laid his right arm over his throat to save it, but as he saw the knife coming down, threw his hand across the bed to the right side and jerked his body over that way, just as the knife descended on the mattress within an inch of his shoulder. His eyes fixed on her arm and hand as she slowly drew the knife out of the bed, a white, well-shaped arm with a pretty down lying lightly over the fair skin, a delicate lady's hand with the crowning beauty of a pink flush under and round the fingernails. She drew the knife out and passed back again slowly to the foot of the bed, stopped there for a moment looking at him, then came on, still speechless, still with no expression on the beautiful face, still with no sound following the stealthy footfalls, came on to the right side of the bed where he now lay. As she approached, she raised the knife again, and he drew himself away to the left side. She struck, as before, right into the mattress with a deliberate, perpendicularly downward action of the arm. This time, his eyes wandered from her to the knife. It was like the large clasp knives, which he had often seen laboring men use to cut their bread and bacon with. Her delicate little fingers did not conceal more than two-thirds of the handle. He noticed that it was made of buckhorn, clean and shining as the blade was, and looking like new. For the second time she drew the knife out, concealed it in the wide sleeve of her gown, then stopped by the bedside watching him. For an instant he saw her standing in that position, then the wick of the spent candle fell over into the socket, the flame diminished to a little blue point, and the room grew dark. A moment or less if possible passed so, and then the wick flamed up smokily for the last time. His eyes were still looking eagerly over the right-hand side of the bed when the final flash of light came, but they discerned nothing. The fair woman with the knife was gone. 
With the dreadful conviction of what he had seen still strong within him, he leapt out of bed and screaming, Murder! Wake up there! Wake up! Dashed headlong through the darkness to the door. It was fast locked, exactly as he had left it on going to bed. His cries on starting up had alarmed the house. He heard the terrified, confused exclamations of women. He saw the master of the house approaching along the passage with his burning rush candle in one hand and his gun in the other. What is it? asked the landlord breathlessly. Isaac could only answer in a whisper. A woman with a knife in her hand in my room. A fair, yellow-haired woman. She jabbed at me with a knife twice over. The landlord looked at Isaac by the flickering light of his candle. <laughs> she seems to have missed you twice, he said. I touched the knife as it came down, Isaac went on. It struck the bed each time. The landlord took his candle into the bedroom. In less than a minute, he came out again into the passage in a violent passion. The devil fly away with you and your woman with the knife. There isn't a mark in the bedclothes anywhere. What do you mean by coming into a man's place and I'd frighten his family out of their wits by a dream? I'll leave your house, said Isaac faintly. Better out on the road in rain and dark on my way home that back again in that room after what I've seen in it. Lend me a light to get my clothes by uh, uh, and tell me what I'm to pay. Pay? cried the landlord, leading the way with his light sulkily into the bedroom. You'll find your score on the slate when you go downstairs. I wouldn't have taken you in for all the money you've got about you if I'd known your dreaming, screeching ways beforehand. Look at the bed. Where's the cut of a knife in it? Look at the window. Is the lock busted? Look at the door which I heard you fasten yourself. Is it broken? Murdering woman with a knife in my house, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Isaac answered not a word. He huddled on his clothes, and then they went down the stairs together. Nigh on twenty minutes past two, said the landlord as they passed the clock. A <laughs> nice time in the morning to frighten honest people out of their wits. Isaac paid his bill, and the landlord let him out at the front door. The rain had ceased, but the night was dark and the wind bleaker than ever. Little did the darkness or the cold matter to Isaac. If he had been turned out into the wilderness in a thunderstorm, it would have been a relief after what he had suffered in the bedroom of the inn. What was the fair woman with the knife? The creature of a dream? Or that other creature from the unknown world called among men by the name of Ghost? He could make nothing of the mystery had made nothing of it, even when it was midday on Wednesday and when he stood at last once more on the doorstep of home. His mother came out eagerly to receive him. His face told her in a moment that something was wrong. I've lost the place, but that's my luck. I dreamed an ill dream last night, mother. Or maybe I saw a ghost. Take it either way, it scared me out of my senses and I'm not my own man again yet. Isaac, your face frightens me. Come into the fire. Come in and tell Mother all about it. He was as anxious to tell her as she was to hear, for it had been his hope all the way home that his mother, with her quicker capacity and superior knowledge, might be able to throw some light on the mystery which he could not clear up for himself. His mother's face grew paler and paler as he went on. She never interrupted him by so much as a single word, but when he had done... She moved her chair close to his, put her arm around his neck, and said to him, Isaac, 
You dreamed your ill dream on this Wednesday morning. What time was it when you saw the fair woman with the knife in her hand? Isaac reflected and answered, Somewhere about two o'clock in the morning. His mother struck her hands together with a gesture of despair. This Wednesday is your birthday, Isaac, and two o'clock in the morning is the time when you were born. Isaac's capacities were not quick enough to catch the infection of his mother's superstitious dread. He was amazed and a little startled also when she suddenly rose from her chair, opening her old writing desk, took pen, ink and paper, and then said to him, Your memory's but a poor one, Isaac, and now I am an old woman. Mine's not much better. I want all about this dream of yours to be as well known to both of us years hence as it is now. Tell me over again all you told me a minute ago when you spoke of what the woman with the knife looked like. Isaac obeyed and marveled much as he saw his mother carefully set down on paper the very words that he was saying. Light grey eyes, she wrote, with a droop in her left eyelid, flaxen hair with a yellow gold streak in it, white arms with a down upon them, little lady's hands with a reddish look about the fingernails, clasp knife with a buckhorn handle that seemed as good as new. Mrs. Scatchard added the year, month, day of the week, and time in the morning when the woman of the dream appeared to her son. She then locked up the paper carefully in her writing desk. Neither on that day nor on any day after could her son induce her to return to the matter of the dream. She obstinately kept her thoughts about it to herself and even refused to refer again to the paper in her writing desk. Ere long, Isaac grew weary of attempting to make her break her resolute silence, and time gradually wore out the impression produced on him by the dream. He began by thinking of it carelessly, and he ended by not thinking of it at all. This result was the more easily brought about by the advent of some important changes for the better in his prospects. He reaped at last the reward of his long and patient suffering under adversity by getting an excellent place, keeping it for seven years, and leaving it, on the death of his master, not only with an excellent character, but also with a comfortable annuity bequeathed to him as a reward for saving his mistress's life in a carriage accident. Thus it happened that Isaac Scatchard returned to his old mother seven years after the time of the dream at the inn, with an annual sum of money at his disposal, sufficient to keep them both in ease and independence for the rest of their lives. The mother, whose health had been bad of late years, profited so much by the care bestowed on her and by freedom from money anxieties, that when Isaac's birthday came round, she was able to sit up comfortably at table and dine with him. On that day, as the evening drew on, Mrs. Scatchard discovered that a bottle of tonic medicine, which she was accustomed to take, happened to be empty. Isaac immediately volunteered to go to the chemist's and get it filled again. It was a rainy, bleak night, and on going into the chemist's shop, he was passed hurriedly by a poorly dressed woman coming out of it. The glimpse he had of her face struck him, and he looked back after her as she descended the doorsteps. You are noticing that woman, said the chemist's apprentice behind the counter. It's my opinion there's something wrong with her. She's been asking for laudanum to put on a bad tooth. Puh. Master's out for half an hour, and I told her I wasn't allowed to sell poison to strangers in his absence. She laughed in a queer way and said she would come back in half an hour. If she expects Master to serve her, I think she'd be disappointed. That's a case of suicide, sir, if ever there was one yet, 
These words added immeasurably to the sudden interest of the woman which Isaac had felt at the first sight of her face. After he'd got the medicine bottle filled, he looked about anxiously for her as soon as he was out on the street. She was walking slowly up and down on the opposite side of the road. With his heart, very much to his own surprise, beating fast, Isaac crossed over and spoke to her. He asked if she was in any distress. She pointed to her torn shawl, her scanty dress, her crushed, dirty bonnet, then moved under a lamp so as to let the light fall on her stern, pale, but still most beautiful face. I look like a comfortable, happy woman, don't I? She said with a bitter laugh. She spoke with a purity of intonation which Isaac had never heard before from other than ladies' lips. Her slightest action seemed to have the easy, negligent grace of a thoroughbred woman. Her skin, for all its poverty-stricken paleness, was as delicate as if her life had been passed in the enjoyment of every social comfort that wealth can purchase. Even her small, finely shaped hands, gloveless as they were, had not lost their whiteness. Little by little, in answer to his questions, the sad story of the woman came out. There is no need to relate it here. It is told over and over again in police reports and paragraphs descriptive of attempted suicides. My name is Rebecca Murdoch, said the woman as she ended. I have nine pence left, and I thought of spending it at the chemist's over the way and securing a passage to the other world. Whatever it is, it can't be worse to me than this, so why should I stop here? Besides the natural compassion and sadness moved in his heart by what he heard, Isaac felt within him some mysterious influence at work all the time the woman was speaking, which utterly confused his ideas and almost deprived him of his powers of speech. All that he could say in answer to her last reckless words was that he would prevent her from attempting her own life if he followed her about all night to do it. His rough, trembling earnestness seemed to impress her. I won't occasion you that trouble, she answered. You have given me a fancy for living by speaking kindly to me. Isaac was hopelessly taken with the poor woman, and a few more stolen interviews after that first meeting completed his infatuation. In less than a month, he had consented to give Rebecca Murdoch a new interest in existence and a chance of recovering the character she had lost by promising to make her his wife. There was only one thing wanting to perfect his happiness. At their first meeting, there had been mingled with his admiration when he looked in her face a faint, involuntary feeling of doubt whether that face was entirely strange to him. He announced his marriage engagement precipitately and confusedly to his mother on the day when he contracted it. Poor Mrs. Scatchard showed her perfect confidence in her son by flinging her arms around his neck and giving him joy of having found at last a woman to comfort and care for him after his mother was gone. She was all eagerness to see the woman of her son's choice, and the next day was fixed for the introduction. It was a bright, sunny morning, and the little cottage parlour was full of light as Mrs. Scatchard, happy and expectant, dressed for the occasion in her Sunday gown, sat waiting for her son and her future daughter-in-law. Punctual to the appointed time, Isaac hurriedly and nervously led his promised wife into the room. His mother rose to receive her, advanced a few steps, smiling, looked Rebecca full in the eyes, and suddenly stopped. Her face, which had been flushed the moment before, turned white in an instant. Her eyes lost their expression of softness and kindness and assumed a blank look of terror. Her outstretched hands fell to her sides, 
and she staggered back a few steps with a low cry to her son. Isaac, she whispered, clutching him fast by the arm. Isaac, does that woman's face remind you of nothing? Before he could answer, before he could look round to where Rebecca stood, astonished and angered by her reception, his mother pointed impatiently to her writing desk and gave him the key. Open it, she said in a quick, breathless whisper. What does this mean? Why am I being treated as if I had no business here? asked Rebecca angrily. Open it and give me the paper in the left-hand drawer. Quick, quick, for heaven's sake, said Mrs. Scatchard. Isaac gave her the paper. She looked it over eagerly for a moment, then followed Rebecca, who was now turning away haughtily to leave the room, and caught her by the shoulder, abruptly raised the long, loose sleeve of her gown, and glanced at her hand and arm. Something like fear began to steal over the angry expression on Rebecca's face as she shook herself free from the old woman's grasp and left the room. Isaac was hastening after her when his mother turned and stopped him. Light grey eyes, she said. A droop in the left eyelid. Flaxen hair with a gold streak in it. White arms with a down on them. Little lady's hands with a reddish look under the fingernails. The dream woman, Isaac. The dream woman. The faint cleaving doubt, which he had never been able to shake off in Rebecca Murdoch's presence, was fatally set at rest forever. He had seen her face then before, seven years before, on his birthday, in the bedroom of the lonely inn. Be warned. Oh, my son, be warned. Isaac, Isaac, let her go. And do you stop with me? Something darkened the parlour window as those words were said. A sudden chill ran through Isaac and he glanced sidelong at the shadow. Rebecca Murdoch had come back. She was peering in at them over the low window blind. I have promised to marry, mother, he said. And marry I must. Three weeks after that day, Isaac and Rebecca were man and wife. Although after that first interview in the cottage parlour, no consideration could induce Mrs. Scatchard to see her son's wife again or even to talk of her when Isaac tried to plead her cause after their marriage. After some quiet months of married life, Isaac found his wife altering towards him. She grew sullen and contemptuous. She began drinking, and little by little, after the first miserable discovery that his wife was keeping company with drunkards, the shocking certainty forced itself on Isaac that she had grown to be a drunkard herself. He had been in a sadly despondent state for some time before the occurrence of these domestic calamities. His mother's health was failing fast, and he upbraided himself in secret as the cause of the bodily and mental suffering she endured. When to his remorse on his mother's account was added the shame and misery occasioned by the discovery of his wife's degradation, he sank under the double trial, his face began to alter fast, and he looked what he was, a spirit-broken man. His mother, still struggling bravely against the illness that was hurrying her to the grave, was the first to notice the sad alteration in him, and the first to hear of his trouble with his wife. She could only weep bitterly on the day when he made his humiliating confession, but on the next occasion when he went to see her, he found her dressed to go out, and on asking the reason received this answer. I am not long for this world, Isaac, she said and I shall not feel easy on my deathbed unless I have done my best to the last to make my son happy. 
I mean to go with you to your wife and try what I can to reclaim her. Give me your arm, Isaac, and let me do the last thing I can in this world to help my son. He could not disobey her, and they walked together slowly towards his miserable home. It was one o'clock in the afternoon when they arrived. It was their dinner hour, and Rebecca was in the kitchen. His wife soon came into the parlour, and the meeting between her and Mrs. Catchard passed off better than he had ventured to anticipate. He was relieved, however, when the conversation ended, and Rebecca began to lay the cloth for dinner. She brought in the bread tray, cut a slice from the loaf for her husband, then returned to the kitchen. At that moment, Isaac, still anxiously watching his mother, was startled by seeing the same ghastly change pass over her face, which had altered it so awfully on the morning when Rebecca and she first met. Before he could say a word, she whispered with a look of horror, Take me back, home, home again, Isaac. Come with me and never go back again. He was afraid to ask for an explanation. He could only sign her to be silent and help her quickly to the door. As they passed the bread tray on the table, she stopped and pointed to it. Did you see what your wife cut your bread with? She asked in a low whisper. Look. He did look. A new clasp knife with a buckhorn handle lay with the loaf in the bread tray. His mother caught at his arm. The knife of your dream, Isaac. Oh, I'm faint with fear. Take me away before she comes back. He was hardly able to support her. The visible, tangible reality of the knife struck him with a panic. By a desperate effort, he summoned self-possession enough to help his mother out of the house and back to her cottage. Against his mother's most earnest entreaties, Isaac returned home to find that his wife had discovered their secret departure. She had been drinking and was in a fury of passion. The dinner in the kitchen was flung under the grate. The cloth was off the parlor table. Where was the knife? Unwisely, he asked for it. She was only too glad of the opportunity of irritating him. He wanted the knife, did he? Could he give her a reason why? No? Then he should not have it. Not if he went down on his knees to ask for it. Further recriminations elicited the fact that she brought it at a bargain, and that she considered it her own special property. Isaac saw the uselessness of attempting to get the knife by fair means, and determined to search for it later in the day in secret. The search was unsuccessful. Night came on, and he left the house to walk about the streets. He was afraid now to sleep in the same room with her. Three weeks passed. Still sullenly enraged with him, she would not give up the knife, and still that fear of sleeping in the same room with her possessed him. He walked about at night, or dozed in the parlour, or sat watching by his mother's bedside. Before the expiration of the first week in the new month, his mother died. Isaac was present at her death, and her last words in this world would address to him. Don't go back, my son. Don't go back. He was obliged to go back, if it were only to watch his wife. Exasperated by his distrust of her, she revengefully sought to add a sting to his grief 
by declaring that she would attend the funeral. In spite of all he could do or say, she held with wicked pertinacity to her words, and on the day appointed for the burial, forced herself, inflamed and shameless with drink, into her husband's presence, and declared that she would walk in the funeral procession to his mother's grave. This last worst outrage, accompanied by all that was most insulting in word and look, maddened him for the moment. He struck her. The instant the blow was dealt, he repented it. She crouched down, silent, in the corner of the room, and eyed him steadily. It was a look that cooled his hot blood and made him tremble. But there was no time now to think of a means of making atonement. Nothing remained but to risk the worst till the funeral was over. There was but one way of making sure of her. He locked her into her bedroom. When he came back some hours after, he found her sitting very much altered in look and bearing by the bedside with a bundle on her lap. She rose and faced him with a strange composure. No man has ever struck me twice, she said, and my husband shall have no second opportunity. From this day forth, we see each other no more. Before he could answer, she passed him and left the room. He saw her walk away up the street. Would she return? All that night he watched and waited, but no footsteps came near the house. The next night, overcome by fatigue, he lay down in the bed in his clothes, with the door locked, the key on the table, and the candle burning. His slumber was not disturbed. The third night, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth passed, and nothing happened. He lay down on the seventh, still in his clothes, still with the door locked, the key on the table, and the candle burning, but easier in his mind. Easier in his mind and in perfect health of body when he fell off to sleep. But his rest was disturbed. He woke twice without any sensation of uneasiness, but the third time, it was with that never-to-be-forgotten shivering of the night at the lonely inn, that dreadful sinking pain at the heart which once more aroused him in an instant. His eyes opened towards the left-hand side of the bed, and there stood the dream woman again. No, his wife, the living reality, with the dream specter's face, in the dream specter's attitude, the fair arm up, the knife clasped in the delicate white hand. He sprang upon her, almost at the instant of seeing her, and yet not quickly enough to prevent her from hiding the knife. Without a word from him, without a cry from her, he pinioned her in the chair. With one hand he felt up her sleeve, and there, where the dream woman had hidden the knife, his wife had hidden it, the knife with the buckhorn handle that looked like new. In the despair of that dreadful moment, his brain was steady, his heart was calm. He looked at her fixedly with the knife in his hand and said these last words. You told me we should see each other no more, and you have come back. It is my turn now to go, and to go forever. I say that we shall see each other no more, and my word shall not be broken. He left her and set forth into the night. There was a bleak wind abroad, and the smell of recent rain was in the air. The distant church clocks chimed the quarter as he walked rapidly beyond the last houses in the suburb. He asked the first policeman he met what hour that was of which the quarter had just struck. The man referred sleepily to his watch and answered, 
two o'clock. Two in the morning. What day of the month was this day that had just begun? He reckoned it up from the date of his mother's funeral. The fatal parallel was complete. It was his birthday. Had he escaped the mortal peril which his dream foretold, or had he only received a second warning? As this ominous doubt forced itself on his mind, he stopped, reflected, and turned back again towards the city. He was still resolute to hold his word and never to let her see him more. But there was a thought now in his mind of having her watched and followed. The knife was in his possession. The world was before him. But a new distrust of her, a vague, unspeakable, superstitious dread had overcome him. I must know where she goes. Now she thinks I have left her, he said to himself as he stole back wearily to the precincts of his house. It was still dark. He waited outside, never losing sight of the house till daylight. Then he ventured indoors, listened, and heard nothing. Looked into the kitchen, scullery, parlour, and found nothing. Went up at last into the bedroom. It was empty. Whither had she gone? No mortal tongue could tell him. The darkness had covered her flight, and when the day broke, no man could say where the light found her. Before leaving the house and the town forever, he gave instructions to a friend and neighbour to sell his furniture for anything that it would fetch and to apply the proceeds towards employing the police to trace her. The directions were honestly followed and the money was well spent, but the inquiries led to nothing. At this part of the narrative, the landlord paused and, turning towards the window of the room in which we were sitting, looked in the direction of the stable-yard. So far... He said, I tell you what was told to me. The little that remains to be added lies within my own experience. Between two and three months after the events I've just been relating, Isaac Scatchard came to me and asked for employment here. He has the perpetual thought that his wife is alive and looking for him. I believe he would not let himself drive off to sleep towards two in the morning for a king's ransom. Two in the morning, he says, is the time she will find him one of these days. Two in the morning is the time all the year round when he likes to be most certain that he has got the clasp knife safe about him. She's looking for me, is all he says when anybody speaks to him about the one anxiety of his life. She's looking for me. He may be right. She may be looking for him. Who can tell? Who can tell? Said I. She's looking for me. Thank you.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 